Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. I am the enemy of your enemy now, and I have my own reasons for wanting the Empire to fall. But we have little time. The one they call Vader will be here soon. Welcome, Masters and Padawans, to a special release of Full of Sith. I'm your host, Brian Young. This episode's actually an interview I did um, with uh, Scott Renshaw. Now, Scott is, uh, he's my editor at, at City Weekly, so if you've read any of my material at Salt Lake City Weekly, which is the weekly uh, newspaper here in Salt Lake City, uh, I write about geek stuff and, and things there. He's my, my editor there, and he's been the film critic there for years and years and years and years, but he's also a huge Disney Parks fan, and uh, just a Disney fan uh, in general. And he wrote a book called Happy Place uh, that is about sort of like fan culture at Disney Parks, and it's a really fascinating look at at these things, but not only at the fandom and the culture itself, but his own fandom and how that changes with the park. And we got together at my favorite coffee shop to, uh, to, to talk about fan culture, Disney parks, and Star Wars in that intersection. And I think we had a really fascinating conversation, and I hope, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm rolling. Um, why don't we start, uh, if you want to introduce yourself and tell us about the book you wrote we can start there sure love to uh so yeah my name's scott renshaw i'm the arts and entertainment editor and film critic for salt lake city weekly where i've been for 17 years now amazingly enough and uh this year i just published in october uh a book called happy place living the disney parks life which is a non-fiction uh character studies i guess is probably the best way to say it kind of an ethnography of disney parks fandom and uh it's kind of started with my own you know growing up in california i grew up uh, going to disneyland a lot and um really hadn't been able to go a lot since i moved here to utah 20 years ago and uh started following a lot of the fan websites and a couple years ago found some particularly interesting stories that kind of led me down a rabbit hole of uh of the people who go to Disneyland all the time and so I spent a couple years following a lot of these people around and telling their stories and then a little bit of my own story as a as a parks fan going to things like the 24-hour uh, Disneyland day and to the D23 convention and uh, sort of experiencing those things from the uh, from the hardcore fans perspective so it was been it's been an interesting experience kind of realizing how, however much of a fan you think you are of something there's somebody who takes it to another degree um, one thing we sort of ask everyone uh, on full of Sith sort of the first thing we ask them is what was your first experience with Star Wars and uh, after that, I kind of want to talk about your first experience about how those two, the Disney Parks fandom and, and how Star Wars are sort of colliding now. Sure. I, I actually love this because I've always said that my my 
coolest memory, the coolest thing that my parents ever did uh, involved my Star Wars experience. So I grew up in Bakersfield, California, and it's a place where at the time there were basically two six-screen multiplexes in the entire city. And it so happened that, you know, we, my brother and I, my brother's a couple years younger, and I was, so I would have been 10, 11, and he would have been 9. And uh, we had been wanting to see this movie so bad and wanting to see it so bad. And our mom, you know, they were sort of the, okay, fine, maybe, whatever. was not making it a priority. I just remember after church one Sunday, we were going to the mall where she did her grocery shopping, which also happened to be the same strip mall where this theater was located that was showing, the only theater in Bakersfield that was showing Star Wars. And so she came, you know, we went in to do some grocery shopping, came out, put some things in the car, and then my parents just started walking over towards the theater. My brother and I were kind of just, what is going on here? And they just turned, my mom just turned to us and go, are you coming? And that was how we knew we were going to see Star Wars. And that was just sort of the coo- I mean, I, I can never recall anything quite on that level if they just had us sort of completely, you know, fooled that this was not going to happen right away. And so, and, you know, this, I grew up in the time, you know, that, that was sort of that defining age for a lot of, of this generation where, you know, I, I had never seen a movie that I went to go back and see in a movie theater. And so I went and saw it maybe four or five times and again for me at that at that age and at that time was pretty uh pretty remarkable and uh yes i had the the full range of the figures and and the whole thing that was yeah that was the pretty pretty much the defining you know again for a lot of our generation especially those who got into to love of film and started writing about film that was kind of what kick-started something loving movies um and now i mean tell me about the intersection of Star Wars and Disney parks specifically now. I mean, that started back in the 80s. But, uh, so I'm wondering about being a fan of the parks who was there at the time. Uh, what was that energy like then, and how is that different than now? Well, I mean, I think it was, there was no given. Because Disney didn't own the Star Wars, you know, the, the, the Lucasfilm properties, you know, the idea that they were bringing this, you know, Star Tours, when, when the original Star Tours was announced, that was, you know, wow, what, what can Disney do with creating a ride that has this, you know, with all the other things they've been able to accomplish? Um, that was at the time. So so I, if, now I'm trying to remember. I think it was 87 that Star 86, Tours. 87, yeah. So I would have already been in college at the time. So I was not visiting regularly then at that time. And so I only would sort of be able to hear about it. And the first time I was able to go was, I think, the year that I graduated from, uh, from college in 89 was the first time I'd done Star Tours. And, you know, the first kind of motion simulator experience I'd had in Remarkable. So, you know, I, I think that the the anticipation was pretty interesting to me because, you know, no one really had a sense for what the combination of Disney and Star Wars would be. That was just sort of this brand new thing. Disney had not really done all that much with anything besides its own characters and its own properties. So, of course, this is before Indiana Jones Adventure and before, you know, what, what they're doing now with Avatar. So, you know, it was kind of an uncharted territory for them. And although, I mean, I guess maybe Captain EO was sort of the closest approximation of something that they had kind of taken that wasn't one of their own characters or or the original things like um, um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Or but they had hired them to create that for... Exactly. So yeah. that there was, you know, that, that realizing that, you know, the engineer, the, the imagineering kind of component and, and mixing with, with Lucasfilm was sort of... And again, I think so... I remember if EO was a year or so earlier or was right around the same time and so there was you know that that realization that there were interesting things that could be done that didn't necessarily involve kind of the Disney stable of, of characters so now we've got 
uh, I mean, we've got a couple of Star Wars movies out, and Disney's had, they've owned it for a few years now, and obviously there have been announcements made that Star Wars Land is on the way, and that's sort of replacing or altering some things in the park. And in your book, you spent a lot of time with the super fans of Disney parks, and I'm wondering, uh, from your perspective and from the perspective of maybe some of the people in the books, like where... Where are the Disney Park super fans coming in on on this park coming? You know, it's. I think it's very different from the West Coast to the East Coast because I think the um, Hollywood Studios, being what it is, kind of an amalgamation already. I think that the Florida people were sort of this is fine. There was nothing unusual or, or you know problematic about the fact that they were using all of this this space. You know that you know anytime anything goes in a Disney park, there's a there's a you know contingent of people who are going to be depressed about it they've had some defining experience so you know the backs the the back lot of of uh hollywood studios in florida going to make way for for you know this and of course there's they're also building the toy story land and that's in that same kind of general area so there are two things that are going on there so that i don't think that was really the same And, and and it's not as though people have this inherent problem with star wars or people who are fans of star tours and that's you know that's uh, you know already already present in in both of the uh, both parks but the Disneyland what had to happen in order to make the space available for Star Wars land in Disneyland California in terms of rerouting the rivers of America cutting off part of Tom Sawyer Island that I think hit some people hard and there are those who think Disneyland is a little more of an inviolate uh, you know kind of a creation that, that having this one particular area specifically for an intel one intellectual property is you know there's there's it's a small but vocal I think is what a lot of these things are that I just think it's the wrong place that maybe that should have gone in California Adventure instead um, and certainly that if it was going to happen to have to not have taken away that that kind of historic part you know it's that's one of the, the things that Walt created was that particular route of the river and, and the island you know that was that was part of and so there's a lot of that that goes on in Disneyland in California it's you know this is Walt's place and you know doing these sort of changes so it's not necessarily Star Wars in particular it's that these changes had to be made to these historic yeah. places in order for it to be possible did, did that same sort of thing happen when they started taking turns out of the Jungle Cruise for Indiana Jones you know that's far enough back that I don't recall what the you know if you know this is um, what I'm trying to remember now when when Indiana Jones opened ninety five yeah um, and so you know I was not in sort of in the immersed in the uh, in the in the park culture in the same way that I that I've been in the last few years so you know I remember that that's you know that it was just the excitement for for Indiana Jones and because the route or the you know the, the jungle cruise has so many components to it that i don't recall it having the same thing that the thing about the, the rivers of america is it's that's one of those few places where you go around that bend of the river where the rest of the park disappears and you do have that sort of really you know unique experience and there's not going to be all that much of that and of course there are also people wondering given the the issues with loading are they actually going to be able to keep both of the boat big boats on the river at the same time. It was already times when the boats would have to stop because there was, you know, it was taking too long to load. And now, if the river route is shorter, will they still be able to have the Mark Twain and the Columbia going at the same time? So there's all those things tangled up in the way people react to these these changes. So knowing the changes are coming, um, and and from what you've heard about what's coming, uh, what are, what are you excited about there? I think there's a lot. To, I mean, there's what's officially been announced, and most and there's 
not been all that much. There have been a few, um, you know, drawings and, you know, that they do whenever something new is coming. And, and so you can see there's this marketplace component that that's, looks like they're going to be, again, this is a new uh, place that they're creating from scratch. It's not one of the existing planets from the, from the, from the universes as it's been kind of, you know, canon uh, uh, planets. So being able to create all that from scratch gives them a lot of freedom to to do. Obviously, the Millennium Falcon is known to be a component in, in you know full size capacity, and that's going to be obviously a huge part of it. One of the things that I have heard about them, this came from someone basically finding a patent um, for an, and I'm going to find it's interactive audience projection system, and it's essentially being able to. L- fight the drone with your lightsaber um and that to me is you know whether that's going to be um just sort of a part of of whatever transition they make from what is now the jedi academy if there's some sort of variation on that there's some other really interesting stuff i'd heard about uh and i'm wondering if if you could correct me if i'm wrong on this but i heard that the idea that they're taking sort of that magic band RFID technology and where on Star Tours now they'll take your picture and you're the Imperial spy you know you're the rebel spy on Star Tours that they would be able to tie that to your magic band so when you go over to Star Wars land there'd be able to be wanted posters of you as you walk by that sort of thing it's one of the things that I've heard talked about no that's not that's an unconfirmed um you know that there's a lot of that there could be a lot more of the interactivity that your identity within that place sort of follows you around wherever you go that if you have an interaction with a stormtrooper here that you know you may find someone someone down the road who knows who you are because you know you you, know, you identify yourself and it's like you just had this you were just over in the cantina what were you doing there and you can have these kinds of um, experiences but again that that part is not clear the you know the the lightsaber drone battle seems to be more uh, kind of firmly sourced at this point and then the idea that the uh, one of the two big e-tickets there there's, there is going to be the Millennium Falcon but then the one that's sort of being referred to as the battle escape which sounds incredibly complex yeah. at this point in terms of of the ride system and multiple levels of the ride and you have to board and get off and then you, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 animatronics, which is double the amount that's in Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. which is, you know, already um, the, you know, the sort of the, the standard there for that. So it sounds as though they're they're really, they're not kind of doing it on the cheap. They're really kind of taking some, some unique chances on this. And it is a little bit of a chance, especially because the capacity could be fairly low, which is... You know anyone who's who's gone to the Radiator Springs Racers and knows it's a, if they're estimating about the same capacity, you know that was a you know regularly two hour standby waits for you know two to three years of, of Radiator Springs Racers. So that could be what you're in. And I would guess Star Wars is probably more popular than Cars. I would guess it would. I mean, it's going to be an absolutely initially it will be because it's just going to be so unique. I mean, I think one of the advantages that this has. I mean, they were thinking smart in terms of building both at the same time on both coasts, because otherwise you would have this influx of East Coast Disney fans all swarming yeah. in, or vice versa. Like with, with the problem Universal had with Harry Potter, where yes. everybody was there and everything was choked Yes. Out. And so having those two open, and again, we don't know an exact opening date. There may be, you know, I think if they're smart, they're not going to open them on different times. They just, it would just be crazy, because everyone who wants to be the first one will go wherever it is that they're opening first. Yeah. Um, so I think that you have to be they have to be you know conscientious of the fact that it's going to be it's going to be a madhouse and and 
you know, they're at least thinking, you know, given the, the, the location of Disneyland, Disneyland has choke points all over the place all the time. At least it seems like where it is in sort of that remote, um, I guess, northwest corner um, will not have the same issues where it's, you know, parades are going to affect it or those kinds of things. That's always the worst when you get stuck behind a parade. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm wondering about... So, as you've, you've sort of spent a lot of time entrenched with the Disney Parks fandom, where do you see the key differences? Uh, where do you see the key differences between what you would say, like, is an obsessive sort of Disney Parks fan versus a Star Wars fan? And where do you see them overlapping in that, where, where something like this might be? I, I think fan cultures in general are fairly similar, and also similar in the fact that they almost seem to fight each other within their communities more than they fight those who are on the outside. And I think that's really what I have observed, especially when you have a situation like what's going on with the changes to Disneyland that the Star Wars land is creating, is you have people who are just, you know, well, Walt Disney said the parks would always change, and that's, you know, that's not going to be a problem. And then there are those who are really dissatisfied with specifically where things are going and so forth. So, I mean, I think that fan cultures have that component within them all the time. The civil wars are often harder fought than the external wars. Um, I do think that the fact that, at least now, the fact that Disneyland is a place, that there are there are connections that are slightly different than, than those who are fans of things that exist in popular culture, that exist films, TV shows, books. That I think having that place becomes that rallying point and so you know the physical change to that place is is permanent and so you don't have i mean obviously you had people you know for example you know had their fairly significant emotional and and you know reactions to the changes in the in the original trilogy um and and you know those kinds of things which now are quote-unquote permanent to the extent that it's you know very difficult to find those original versions but that's pretty rare otherwise you can say well i would rather watch this than this but the both of those thises are still there. Do people still reminisce about old Fantasyland and the and Captain Hook's boat in the? Absolutely. Harbor? I mean, there are there are Facebook groups devoted to nothing but these you know vintage Disneyland pictures. And I guess it's that you know, like I was there. I, I was so excited to get to, to see Hatbox Ghost as soon as I did. Yeah, I mean, and, and new things do have, in, and if, well, I mean, Hatbox Ghost is an interesting, <laughs> obviously, in the, in the sense that, and for those who aren't familiar, this is you know on the Haunted Mansion. And it's new, but it's something that dates back to the original schematic, original drawings, and original plans for it. So, it had that historic component, in addition to the fact that it was something new. So you could you could have that you know appeal to both sides of things. But there are people who still lament that you can't ride the you know the Skyway through the Matterhorn anymore, and there are people that you know lament that you have to go on the Nemo version of the submarine instead of fighting against the giant squid. So all of the yeah, I mean those things are you know they're they're very deeply entrenched emotional connections to places where people went when they were kids or you it know very you know, much like Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And again, I think the physical the physical nature of the place does make it slightly different only in the sense that when you have those permanent changes all you've got is your pictures you can't go back to the you know watch that version if you that's the version you prefer i may still have my vhs copies around somewhere of the the pre uh pre-special edition trilogy but that's you know that's not easy to find but i think that you're always going to get those those really emotional connections to, to something that that's when you remember it and that's the way you're going to stick to it do you think that there is 
Are there any aspects of Disneyland that are that are completely inviolable that they just won't be able to change them for anything coming forward? Maybe 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 just Main Street. I mean, you would I, at this point. I would say nothing. With, I'd love to be able to say that nothing is, but the fact that there is, you know, a Starbucks on Main Street, USA, suggests that that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there is sorry, there was not Starbucks in you know turn of the century, you know, Marceline, Missouri. Um, so there is nothing that is outside of the realm of what the Disney company could do if they saw that it was the smarter business decision to make. And I think the the hard part for people. And, and, and this may, again, this probably crosses fandoms, is you have people who will go no matter what, they are that devoted to it, they are that, you know, in, emotionally connected to it, that you're going to have to work really hard to alienate them, and I think the company knows this. And their work now is bringing in the new fans, and so they will do that with the new and the cool things. They will do that with changing the, the Tower uh, of Terror to the Guardians of the Galaxy Tower, and they will do that with, with changing other things to having the, the um, hyperspace mountain overlay in Space Mountain. Which is, which is just a great experience. Which is, it is a great experience. The fact that they're, they don't seem to be returning to the original version at all is what I think people are concerned about, who, who are fans yeah. of that ride. No, it, it was interesting. It's probably the best overlay I've had. I mean, I remember yes. through the 90s when they were experimenting with overlays with sponsors. So I remember going and it was like the FedEx delivery ride. And it was probably the worst experience I'd ever had on Space Mountain. And I remember the the uh, version where they were playing the... Uh, uh, Let's see, what was it? It was the higher ground, the Red Hot Chili Peppers higher ground. It was the Rockin' Space Mountain version in, in the uh, the 90s. So, so Hyperspace Mountain is a step up as far as over. It's a considerably it's considerably a step up. But, you know, again, the idea is anything in Violet? I'd say no, there isn't. And, and the fact that some of the things that were done with New Orleans Square when they, when they changed Club 33 suggests some of that, too. There's these amazing historic places, the last things designed by Walt Disney himself, and they were just eliminated. And so, yeah, there's... There's nothing that is sacred uh, at this point, it seems. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, over the course of writing the book, you obviously went back to Disneyland and Disney World uh, a lot to do research and interact with people. And you'd been a fan of the parks before. How did your relationship to the parks change looking through the lens of these super fans? I mean, I think it's impossible not to realize that and it kind of what I said at the beginning, however much of a fan you think you are of something, there's the next level. And I think that as someone who grew up, you know, I didn't grow up right there in the heart of it. I didn't go every day or every week the way that a lot of these people that I, that I profiled for the book do, that my experience is the, is the same one that a lot of people had when they go on vacation, which is you're trying to pack a lot into a day. And I think what changed the most was my recognition that once I realized I would be coming back in a month or two months and I could just sit on Main Street and people watch, let the band go by, um, those are the things that I think become that next level experience for people who go regularly. They, they, you know, the people I profile, they'll go there and perhaps not get on a single ride the entire time they're there. That was baffling to me. I couldn't comprehend that because my experience was always you got to pack in as many rides as you can. You're only going once every year or every two years. Um, so I think that's sort of the defining is being able to recognize the appeal of the non-attraction parts of the park um, and realizing that that could be, you know, an amazing experience. It, it's interesting um, when I was. 12 or so, before I moved to Utah, my parents had gotten annual passes for all of us kids, and that was babysitting instead of, <laughs> of 
of anything, and there were, there would be days where we did nothing but Star Tours. Mm-hmm. Like we would just go on Star Tours in a loop, or we would spend an entire day on Tom Sawyer's Island. And I can't recommend enough how like that's the best like park for kids in the world is just Tom Sawyer's Island. Oh yeah, and I mean that's that's what I realized. You know, when I went. Um, so it was January of 2015, the final day that before they changed the route of the river, and I was there with a bunch, with a group of people, um, and that was one of the chapters of the book. But I hadn't been on Tom Sawyer Island since I was, a, you know, a teenager, and so it had been, you know, thirty some years. And you know, that's the stuff that comes flooding back, is that's where we were allowed to just run free. And um, you know, I think that those those places, when you just kind of discover little out of the way corners, or you know, a little, th- you know. As I say, it's it's the difference between having a crush on someone and being in love with someone. Is that you you you're going to recognize something that might be a little irritating, but you also recognize things that kind of take your relationship to a slightly different level. And you've got to be able to kind of wrestle with both of those things if you really want to have that kind of special relationship with it. What's your favorite spot in the park? I still think it's the New Orleans Square waterfront. There's still you know there's some of the change that was made there where that. The area that's now part of the new Club 33. There's a window that's sort of off center in that area, and it's a little bit frustrating. But you know, it's it's different now that you know for this time period where the river is kind of closed off and the Mark Twain isn't going by. Um, but being able to sort of sit on the waterfront and you hear that that you know New Orleans Square music and um, you've got the Mark Twain kind of rolling by. That's where it doesn't necessarily feel like. It's you know fifty thousand people all crammed into that place, and it's um, it's where you can kind of get a sense for what has that special appeal to people. Is you can feel like you are somewhere else. You are not you are not in a place in the middle of crowded Southern California. You're in New Orleans Square. Now, I think that's one of the things I love most about Disneyland in general is everything's so well designed that when you're in Fantasyland, you can't see anything else. Or when you're in Tomorrowland or even Toontown or wherever, like there is no outside world there. It's a unique element to Disneyland in particular. I mean, I, I, whether any of those sight lines will change with what's going to be built. And I think that was one of the concerns people had, for example, about this, this new version of the tower um, with, the, with the Guardians overlay is, so when you're standing in the middle of what is supposed to be, you know, 1923 uh, Los Angeles, you know, street, in, in, that's the entrance plaza to, to California Adventure, and you look over and you see this, you know, space you know facility that kind of ruins that that component to it whereas if you when you looked and saw an old hollywood hotel that was still part of that so yeah i mean i think there there are reasons to to realize that when you're in some place where the outside world does not intrude at all and you're very much involved you know immersed in that particular area it has it's it, it's a unique psychological component to that i'm curious as far as star wars i mean you talked about seeing Star Wars as a kid for the first time and you've been a film critic for a long time how has I mean it sounds like your, your relationship with Star Wars first was as a fan how has that morphed as a critic especially now in this era where we're getting a new one every year well, it's very, I mean, certainly it's very different. You know, I remember, I was actually, the, the interesting experience with uh, Phantom Menace I had was I was just, I had been hired in May of 99 um, at the City Weekly's sort of sister publication that was in Park City. I was just going to be starting that week. So I hadn't, I wasn't a credentialed press here locally. So I went and, you know, camped out and I was there with, with people in costume watching. And it was the first time I'd had the experience of watching 
a Star Wars film brand new since I had really been a film critic. And and I realized there's something that's that's changed about that that experience. I don't I don't just sort of sit there the way that a lot of those fans are. You know, the whoop goes up when that when that fanfare went up in, in May of ninety nine, and then I'm realizing from you know, my personal experience was I was not enjoying this in the way that I remembered enjoying those original mm-hmm. films. So um, I, I think that any time that analyzing becomes a component, you take that chance. You take that chance in, in that something is not going to be um, as easy if if it disappoints you and you have to really process that in some way. It's 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 a real challenge. So it's not it's not the same experience as sort of I can go in there and if it's like, well, you know, I'll watch it again and, and you know, maybe something will, will come to me the next time. It's like I gotta write now. And I mean, frankly, for any movie, I've always wished I could see it two or three times before I could I could write about it. That's not a luxury I have. So um, having to sort of sit there and go, what was it that what was going on here that just kind of didn't work for me um, is something that, as a fan, I didn't have to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's definitely something uh, with Star Wars movies. The first time that first viewing is all imagery, especially with how. Uh, how far forward they always push the imagery whether 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 you like the movie or not it's always very beautiful to look at and sometimes that's overpowering on that first viewing sure i mean you have those you know when you're dealing with a medium like film in particular where you're you're breaking down a lot of components the the composition of individual shots the way those individual shots are then put together into sequences the the way characters are are constructed or not constructed well um the way that those characters are then immersed in their relationship with other characters you know you're you're dealing with it from a a sort of a literary uh standpoint and then from a visual art standpoint you've got those two things that are fighting with each other and yeah it's hard not to get caught up primarily in one or the other depending on now my background because i started as sort of a literary you know I, i was an English student who who is you know going studying literature, so I often do tend to think about the story component first, and then we'll go back and go. I really wasn't you know grabbing on to what was happening here from a visual storytelling component, and so you know that's that's just something I think everyone wrestles with, whatever their their preferences. Has it been hard? I've, I've been coming around to this idea that that because we have more of these large franchise films that are interconnected, that it's almost you almost have to look at them like they're a television series, like the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies now. You know, like Rogue One almost certainly doesn't stand on its own. Like, I've, I've taken a couple people who've never seen another Star Wars movie, and they came out of it just going, like, that was really pretty, but I have no idea what I just saw or why that was so important. Uh, I mean, it was good enough that they were interested in actually taking those next steps, but as a critic, how do you weigh the idea that a, a film should stand on its own <clears throat> in an environment, uh, with Star Wars in particular, in an environment where they're treating them more like TV series in that way? I mean, I think those. it's interesting to see that happening from the film side because I think it's blurring into the same way that what is now, you know, TV shows, and I'm using air quotes as I'm sitting here, of things that are like the Netflix series in particular, or, or even, you know, Game of Thrones on HBO, where you have things which are so much more cinematic than they've ever been uh, for you know, in the history of a television medium, and so now the what you know the, the blurring of those things has has you know affected both sides, and I think that you you have to be able to recognize that there are people coming from both angles of that. There are people who are going to sit down for their first Marvel movie with Doctor Strange, never having seen one of the other ones. They may not be that many of them, but they're there. Um, and then there are those who see this as part of a continuum, the same way with with an Avengers movie or any any of those kinds of things. And and then 
with Star Wars in particular, you know, that, that history is so much longer. You know, the, the, the Marvel films go back 10 years now as opposed to 40 years. And so, you know, you have a lot of stuff built in not just to the, the actual stories, but to the stories of people's lives that have been part of this. And so you can't pretend that's not part of it. You can't pretend that someone who's sitting down, who was actually in a movie theater in 1977 seeing Star Wars, seeing a new Star Wars film, that that story of their life does not somehow impact their relationship and their experience with that. But I can't I can't be in someone else's head. Yeah. Um, I can only say this is what I'm seeing and sometimes um, what I'm seeing is something that seems to be trying a bit too much to make those connections in a way that sacrifices the individual story that's mm-hmm. unfolding. And that was the experience. Now I will say as I sit here, I have only seen Rogue One the one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know when I will have a chance. It's just because there's so many things that I've, you know, so especially, movies and awards and especially this time of year. It's, it's you know, and then Sundance comes around at, at, for, for Utah film critics in, in particular. But, you know, so my experience sitting there was this film appears to be working so hard to work itself into the matrix of the Star Wars universe, whereas it could have been its own standalone. And I don't know whether that was a reasonable expectation or not. All I know is that was a frustration for me. How did it make <clears throat> childhood Scott, who was watching Star Wars, feel? I don't, I mean, I don't think I've or had this, I, I don't buy the, uh, I don't go the ruin my childhood uh, route. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I think that's definitely a mistake. But I, I'm saying, did, did this enhance that experience at all, or bring you back to that place at all? It it didn't, and I think because, in, in some ways, Gareth Edwards was making some very interesting and wise choices in terms of, of tone differences you know this was not a um, you know an, an old school uh, adventure of, of a you know kind that you would that you know would, they were inspired by for you know Indiana Jones and so forth where it, it had those those sort of peaks and valleys of action you know it's not the same kind of, of structure so you know that I think that kind of credit is is, is warranted for, for not trying to duplicate um, that experience but I, so I think that that's the way that I'm not thinking. Oh boy, I, you know, I, I want to feel like I felt, you know, when I was ten. Well, maybe not. Maybe not replicating that experience, but adding to it in a way where where you go back and you think about how much this changes what you know about Star Wars. I don't see, and I don't necessarily think that that's. I mean, I, I'm sure that some people will go. Oh, now I know more about everything that led up to this point where we entered the Star Wars universe in 1977. I you know that's I don't think that's ever going to change my experience of just being in there with that yeah. immense star destroyer rolling over my head yeah. in, in some way. Um, so I, I think that it's and that's why I think that its attempts to work so hard at you know making sure that we have these cameos and all of these things was something I didn't I didn't need or didn't want and I and it's not as though I felt oh now it's it's going to change that experience. I don't think it was. I don't know that anything can, and nothing's going to ruin my childhood. A new Ghostbusters movie wasn't going to ruin my experience of the original. It, those kind of things mm-hmm. still stand fairly independently for me. Um, so, as you look forward to Star Wars <coughs> Land, new Star Wars movies, and Disney parks, what's what's sort of the thing you're most excited about for for next year? Well, I mean, because this, you know, as far as we know, we're not going to be seeing the Star Wars Land until. Late 2018, 2019, yeah. probably at the earliest. Um, good. Give them all the time they need to do it right, to to get everything uh, the way it worked out. And I think that the, you know, frankly, this, 
Tomorrowland in California has been kind of such a, a hodgepodge of things for so long that when they actually said, well, this is, you know, sort of Star Wars themed everything, I think that was a welcome change, actually, because, you know, the once they sort of abandoned the, you know, 1960s, early 1970s version of Tomorrowland, which was, you know, we're going to have all these things about the future and going to the moon, and, well, now it's just Buzz Lightyear and, and yeah. you know, Space Mountain. So I think having a lot of those things connected um, made it actually feel like a coherent land for the first time in probably 25 to 30 years, um, which was nice. And I think that if they if they continue that sort of Seasons of the Force concept until Star Wars Land is up, that's a way for Tomorrowland to actually be a more appealing place to be. Um, although the food is not good, yeah. <laughs> the food is not good at the Galactic Grill. Um, but but I think that that's you know we can look forward to the fact that Tomorrowland maybe has a little bit more of a of a cohesive theming, and you know. Basically, other than that, all you're going to see is all these previews, which we, which they will, you know, peek into. And I, for anyone who has not had the experience of, of sitting through the the Path of the Jedi, uh, can I just say, please don't. Maybe it's the, uh, really hard for me to sit through it because the editing is so like the the audio editing and the editing and it it didn't work <clears throat> for me the way I think it it works for people who are. I don't know who it works for. I don't know who it works for either. It's it's a really unpleasant experience in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that as we get, you know, new films all the time, they're going to be, you know, this is what Disney does now. They cross-promote. They optimize the fact that they have a physical place where they can, you know, have a captive audience and they can, you know, bring out a new character or they can bring you something to make sure that you're interested in seeing the next Star Wars film. And I think that that's pretty cool i think that you know what how that um ends up working once they actually do open star wars land i'm a little bit more apprehensive about it's a you know it's a wait and see hope for the best situation but if it basically becomes every time the new movie comes out the the tone of the land changes to promote that you could lose a lot of that in, internal consistency that that you know sense of, of a specific place if you suddenly you know you've created this planet that never existed before and suddenly this character has dropped into it because that's yeah. the one who's going to be the star of the new movie so i hope that doesn't happen do you think that tomorrowland <clears throat> switching into that star war like do you think that there's something of a detriment to the idea that walt was really trying to promote the idea of a better tomorrow and that maybe there's a there's some <clears throat> some cultural loss there in the idea that we're like everything is a dystopia now and no one is looking toward that better tomorrow oh yes i mean l- l- i mean just to be clear I would prefer to have a Tomorrowland that was actually about that optimistic spirit of what is possible and science and technology and something that even Epcot at this point appears to be kind of, you know, abandoning in its its sort of East Coast incarnation. Um, So, yes, ideally, I would love to see a, you know, voyage to Mars or, or whatever the variation on that might be. Knowing that that's never going to happen anymore, given the direction of the company as really focusing on its intellectual properties now, this is the next best alternative. Is it having a Tomorrowland that at least has something that pulls it together? Um, it was really fascinating, actually, at Disneyland Paris, uh, where the Tomorrowland there was very much, dis- it was called Discoveryland. And it's very much in that theme of uh, late, eight, uh, late 19th century explorers. Uh, and even Space Mountain there was a trip to the moon. Uh, it was really fascinating seeing that spirit still on display there, and the Nautilus was there, and uh, and, and the Tokyo Disney Sea has some of that too, and it's you know in its area. So you know it's not as though it's gone, but I think that the 
<clears throat> the direction of the company now really is about optimizing the intellectual properties that it spent a lot of money to acquire. And, you know, I get it. That's the way that you're going to get a new generation that knows Marvel and Star Wars a lot better than they know Pirates of the Caribbean or Haunted Mansion. Well, the Haunted Mansion, I mean, those rides aren't hurting for people to get on them, though, either. No, 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 no. And they never will. They're still going to have that, that historical component in addition to, you know, what they still offer to, to a new gen- and. And, you know, Haunted Mansion has its own overlay with intellectual property attached to it now. and you know, Which, not a fan <clears throat> of. I don't mind it, and I, what I do mind is that it takes up four months of the year. Yeah. That's the real issue, and I think that's, that's become the issue with a lot of these overlays. It's not that they're there, but they're so omnipresent. They're just they're there for I so always, long. I always cringe with pe- when people <clears throat> tell me they're going to Disneyland for the first time, but it's anywhere between October and, you know, January 1st. And it's like, oh, you're going to miss all this great stuff. Yeah. It's, you know, and you get a lot of, you know, the holiday things that are really nice. I, I mean, I think that the the holiday version of uh, Small World is considerably better than the traditional Small World. Now, that puts me in kind of an odd, you know, so outlier. the traditional Small World, like, keeps me away, so I never actually tried the holiday one. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you have the, the advantage that it's not only playing that one song the entire time. It's actually mixing it up with Christmas carols. But the decoration inside is just gorgeous. And it's really, you know, you, you have a little bit more that's, uh, you know, audio from an audio standpoint that's changing it up. And it's really beautiful. And I think and the outs, the exterior with the lights is just stunning. Um, so for people who are interested in grabbing a copy of your book, where would where would they do that? Sure. Uh, again, that's Happy Place, Living the Disney Parks Life is the title of the book. It's at thecriticalpress.com, but it's also available on Amazon and in uh, occasional libraries. But, of course, you know, we like to encourage people to find their own copy and give a gift to the Disney Parks fan in your life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for, for talking to me. This, is, uh, this has been a fun conversation. Thanks so much. So that was our conversation. Um, I really... I really had a great time talking with Scott. I know we we planned on only doing like 20 minutes, but the conversation got really fascinating and I I really love the idea of how can you how can you appreciate a Star Wars film as a critic and then have to write a review after only watching it one time uh versus that wonder and awe you approached with it as a fan as a kid and and the idea that that Disney Parks fans are going through the same thing Star Wars fans go through a lot of the time with the changes to things and the revisions to make it more relevant um disneyland and star wars are actually more alike than i realized um before we go i just uh i've seen rogue one 10 times now and uh wanted to offer a couple of observations um the first one is i i don't know like the more you see the film the more the music works really well and I've been so I've been just drenching myself in the soundtrack, right? There's so many beautiful moments of, of music in there and the way Michael Giacchino takes you through the classic themes every now and again and gets you close to them but like kinda dodges at the last second. It feels really it just feels really awesome, but because it, it gives you those hints of what of what are not what's come before, but what's about to come. And uh, I really love that. And if I had to pick a favorite track of the soundtrack so far, it would probably be uh, the the, the one-two combo of Your Father Would Be Proud of You and Hope. I think those are two incredibly beautiful pieces of music, and I'll stand them up next to 
Duel of the Fates and Across the Stars and the Imperial March, they're they're going to live or an even raised theme, like they're going to, to live on in in the the Star Wars music lexicon and for Giacchino to add to that legacy is is just amazing. And when you see start seeing the cues in the film, I don't know, that's something weird, like I'll do that. Like when a new Star Wars film comes out, I'll have listened to the soundtrack and I can start tracking where things are and actually recognize the cues. Because that first time I watched it, like music was there, but I couldn't tell you much about it. And as I've watched it more, I've, I've come to a deeper appreciation about the music. And the other thing that just kind of hits me every single time I watch the movie is sort of the sad inevitability of of everything but particularly Bodhi's character Bodhi don't take this the wrong way because I know there's a lot of people that don't like Jar Jar but Bodhi's very much like a Jar Jar sort of character he's there he's under the worst of circumstances and he just wants to do good like that's what he wants to do that's what he needs to heal himself um and watching that play out is so engrossing to me and Cassian too like I wasn't after they showed us that preview that first 28 minutes or whatever that that 15 minute chunk and another 12 or 15 minute chunk I wasn't sure I was going to like Cassian in the movie and the more I watch it the more I love Cassian even though he has these conflicted moral choices he has to make he's doing what he thinks is right for the for 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 good and it has like all of this has this echo of it it reinforces Anakin's journey in the prequels right all Anakin did was say here's this really noble ideal goal I want to meet and I'm going to do horrible things to do it so how is Cassian murdering Tivik his contact at the ring of Kafreen that much different than Anakin murdering the younglings to save his wife. Well, for one, one of the big key differences is that Cassian isn't doing it for personal gain or for his personal pride or joy. He's doing it for the good of everyone. He's doing it to make the galaxy a better place. But then again, Anakin seems to think he's doing that as well, that the Jedi are going to turn against the Senate and Palpatine. And and you really see that... It's helped me understand people on the opposite side of the political aisle where I see them as – I would normally see them as Anakin Skywalker doing horrible things to do goals that we share to make the galaxy a better place. But And, and I would see myself more as the Cassian, but maybe they see me that way. And 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 I don't know. It's, it's really helped bridge this understanding I've had uh, in that way. But uh, – so that's – that's it for this special release. Uh, those are just a couple of stray thoughts I had about Rogue One. Um, next week, you'll be back with, with uh, Mike and Holly. I'll be out on a uh, Disney cruise, actually, for, for Star Wars Day at Sea. Um, I'll be there with some other journalists. Uh, Amy Radcliffe will be there, and Chris Taylor will be there. And uh, I don't know if we'll hear from any of them while I'm out there. I'm going to file a report from the boat. But uh, whether we hear from anybody else there or not is anybody's guess. Um, but Mike and Holly will be here to hold down the fort while I'm gone regardless. Uh, so you're in, you're in great hands. And thank you to everyone for all the great email that you've sent in. Uh, welcoming Holly to the show. That's exactly the sort of experience we want anybody coming into the fandom uh, at all to have, you know. Um, and and you, you've all been really great. So... Uh, 
you can check me out uh, at Swankmatron on Twitter. You can find Scott on Twitter. Um, and he gave all his contact information before. Uh, you can find my Patreon at Brian or uh, Patreon.com forward slash Swankmatron. You can, uh, yeah, just find me on Twitter. Um, and uh, please leave the show an iTunes review. Please leave us a voicemail or email using the, the SpeakPipe app at uh, fullofsith.com. And uh, for everyone else, for all of my, my co-hosts who aren't here for this special release, uh, and for Scott Renshaw, I'm Brian Young, and the Force will be with you, always. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.